Welcome to the Neuropedic Sports Rehab Podcast. I'm your host, Ramez Antoon, but please call me Mez. I'm a physical therapist and a strength coach. And in this show, we talk about the continuum of clinical practice to getting back to training in the gym. We focus on sustainable performance and longevity. I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy our show. Before we start, if you're a sports PT interested in a virtual mentorship, make sure you stick around for after the episode. We have more details about our 12-week mentorship program that we've been getting awesome feedback from our students. Also, if you like to consume content by reading, we drop a weekly newsletter every Friday morning with free sports rehab and fitness content. So if you're interested, make sure you check out the episode description where we have a link to sign up for our weekly newsletter. All right, without further delay, let's get into today's episode. All right, everyone, part two of the philosophy and core beliefs. In this part, we're going to talk about beliefs four through seven. In the first part, we talked about beliefs one through three, which were number one, believe in the potential of change, two, coach the whole person, and three, use a positive approach. In this episode, we're going to talk about belief four, move with intent. Belief five, teach people the difference between tension and relaxation. Belief six, use variable repetition. And belief seven, promote continued engaging activity. I'm also going to share with you guys my core beliefs in this episode and go a little bit deeper into what they each mean. Number one core belief, excuse me, core value is understand first then advise. Two, educate and stay educated. Three, be proactive. Four, be compassionate. And five, stay humble. Without further ado, here's today's episode. Belief four, move with intent. So intention basically comes down to what's the goal? What's the purpose and what's the objective? And I like to think of moving with intent as the coach's intent or the therapist's intention and then also the client's intention. I think it's important to define both. So to keep it super simple, what's the client's goal? Where do they want to be six months from now or a year from now? And then more at a macro level or excuse me, a micro level from the therapist's perspective or the coach's perspective is are these movements or exercises that we're prescribing to them working towards their goal? In other words, you know, are we working on mobility or are we working on motor control? Are we working on static or dynamic control? What's the focus? What's the intention of the treatment? What are we trying to get at? And with that focus, that also helps the patient or the client gain clarity. Another thing I like to think about is, are we providing them with the prerequisites to fulfill their goal? So let's say their goal is strength, endurance, or power, but we identify a weak link in terms of ankle mobility, for example. Can we provide them with the prerequisite of ankle mobility so that they actually can demonstrate the prerequisite to fulfill a move of strength, squat, deadlift, a uh, broad jump, whatever? I like to think of a well-defined intention as a tool or a strategy to keep us calm and focused and allow us to make more strategic decisions in the midst of chaos or when things don't go according to plan with the client or if the client comes in and, you know, they've they've uh, regressed for whatever reason, having an intention in in the treatment plan and having a goal in mind can allow us to be very agile 
And uh, as Dan John would say, the goal is to keep the goal the goal. Sometimes we have to change the plan around a little bit, but if we don't have a well-defined goal, we can find ourselves chasing our tail. So move with intent, I believe, also helps us to combat these superficial questions like, is this a good or a bad exercise? Right, I'd like to replace that question with, what's the purpose here? What's the client trying to achieve? What's their goal? And once we get that answer, then that can help us maybe ask them better questions so that we can uh, decide if that exercise is good or bad depending on what the client is chasing or what the client is going after. So that's some of my two cents with uh, the superficial view of move with intent. If we go in a little bit deeper with move with intent from a movement coaching perspective, I like to think of coaching movement as a way of providing the client with a rich sensory experience with movement. And how do we do that? Well, PNF does a beautiful job at breaking this, the sensory system into three different categories. We can cue vision, we can cue auditory by means of verbal cues, and we can cue proprioceptive cues using bands, the environment, our hands, And I like to add another category, which is memory. If we can tap into a previous memory of a movement, for example, that's similar to what we're trying to teach, let's say, for example, we're teaching somebody a chop or a lift, and the person is completely awkward with the movement, yet the person used to play tennis or baseball. Well, yeah, the movements aren't exactly the same, but if we can tap into that memory of a diagonal swing, maybe that can promote a better movement experience for that individual. So what sensory system can we tap into to effectively help the client move with intent? So it can really help with motor planning and helping them with um, visualizing the movement and then attacking, to quote the water boy. Visualize and then attack. So really, when we're trying to help the client move with intent, we're trying to optimize two things, motor learning and their client's engagement. So to bring it back to those categories we talked about before, if we use the visual system, can we give them a proper demonstration of what we're asking for in terms of movement? Their ability to visualize the movement in their mind's eye before execution of the movement is going to help them succeed that much more. So even if we can't demonstrate the movement for whatever reason, let's say we're not well, we can have a video demonstration of the movement or have somebody else demonstrate the movement. If you're familiar with Nick Winkleman and his new book, The Language of, um, the Language of Coaching, excuse me, he does a beautiful job at breaking down uh, verbal cueing and tapping into memory. I mean, if you haven't read, into, read this book and you're a coach, I highly, highly recommend it. It takes verbal cueing to a whole new level. Really beautiful way of tying in um, auditory verbal cues and what he does with uh, memory and establishing intention in the athlete. Uh, the, uh, the last thing that we uh, talked about is proprioceptive cueing. So in PNF, we talk about using different postures and different positions to um, provide tactile uh, feedback for the client. So for example, if they're having a hard time with anterior core drills, we might put them on the ground in prone, 
give them um, what we like to call anchor points on the ground, for example, getting their knees and their elbows to, um, we, we, we cue it verbally, pretend like you're gluing your elbow or your hand to the floor when they're doing, let's say, a plank. <clears throat> but we can use proprioceptive cues to give them a feel for what the movement's supposed to feel like. So their ability to feel the movement and self-error detect, and by error I mean once we establish an intention of how we would like them to move, we don't say no or we don't say that they've done a mistake when they don't move as we intend to move or as we set the intention up for them to move, excuse me, but we allow for a window of correct. And can they feel what the movement is supposed to feel like in that window of correct? And can they implicitly or explicitly identify the quote-unquote errors during the practice? And can we provide the proper uh, proprioceptive cues to develop that feel and that sense of self-awareness when they're doing the exercises? So when they go home, they can feel if their intention is actually matching their action by means of setting up the proprioceptive environment along with the verbal cues, visual cues, and if we can tap into any memory as we talked about before. And then finally, we can look at the, the environment, the cognitive environment in which the exercise is being coached, for example. Is there a lot of distractions around and this person's having a hard time focusing? In the motor learning literature, we talk about that in terms of open versus a closed environment. Maybe in the beginning, we need to have them in a corner of the gym that's a little um, little less things going on around them. For example, uh, do we have to pick one cue instead of bombarding them with three or four cues? Again, it's another really awesome uh, principle from Nick Winkleman's book is giving them one cue and using silent sets where you let them explore the movement because they're so distracted. Giving them one cue, allow them to go through the set and then provide them with some feedback. It's, I want to say that's bandwidth feedback in motor learning literature. And then the environment can also be broken down into, is it a positive or a negative environment? So this comes back, back down to word choices and to refer back to a positive approach, belief number three, how are we cueing them? When they make a mistake, are we saying no, not like that, like this? That's, that's got a negative connotation to it. Can we bring a little bit more of a uh, positive feel to our verbal cue so we don't belittle the person if they're feeling awkward throughout the um, learning process? And then also acknowledging their state of readiness. I think that from a cognitive environment standpoint, you know, are they coming in early mornings and they're not a mor morning person? You know, what's in terms of the inverted U theory in motor learning, if they're too excited or if they're too drowsy, learning's going to be compromised and they, their central nervous system may not be ready to receive new information. And then finally, under move with intent, we have the physical environment, which technically relates back to the proprioceptive um, cueing, but we look at constrained versus an unconstrained task. So we mess with degrees of freedom here, using joint locking techniques or putting them in specific postures to make it more difficult for them to move 
from certain areas of the body to force them to move from others. So for example, if they're doing, if we're coaching a hip hinge and this person's knees keep going forward, we can put a chair right in front of their knees. So we block that movement from happening. Or if we want them to do more thoracic mobility work, but they keep moving from their lumbar spine, well, we can put them in a quote unquote lumbar lock position and uh, force them by means of positioning and setting up the physical environment to force movement where we want the movement to come from. So just to quickly summarize the move with intent categories I just dumped on you guys, there's three fundamental things that dictate movement success. Can the client visualize the movement in their mind's eye? Number two, do they have a feel for the movement? Can they self-error detect? So using proprioceptive cues to help with that. And then three, the environment. What's their cognitive environment like? Are they very distractible? Uh, are we using positive verbal cues? Are we using too many cues? And what's their state of readiness cognitively? And then the physical environment, can we use constrained or unconstrained tasks or constrain or unconstrain the environment in some way to get the movement that we're asking for? And then we can categorize all of our cues in four different categories, visual cues using vision, auditory cues, verbal cues, we can use metronomes, a lot of different creative ways we can use auditory cues, memory, can we tap into a previous memory, and then proprioceptive cue using reactive neuromuscular training or different postural variations, for example. So that was move with intent, all the different subcategories of move with intention. Next up would be belief number five. Believe in, I believe that we should be teaching people through a movement practice how to feel the difference between tension and relaxation. So this to me is all about optimizing the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Tension versus relaxation. How well can we bounce back and forth between these two systems? And in terms of movement, we're thinking above, if we're asking somebody to relax, sometimes it's easier to get them to create tension first and then relax, a simple contract, relax move. That's going a little bit micro. Let me zoom back out and go macro for a second. When we look at all of the um, science out there these days about longevity and health and even disease management for that matter, one of the biggest things that we're starting to uh, hone in on is the physiological biomarker of heart rate variability as a measure of the health of the autonomic nervous system and how that is a very powerful biomarker to tell us how adaptable is this individual to stress? So to take this very practical, we can use certain aspects of our rehabilitation process to teach people the difference between tension and relaxation. So we talked about contract, relax for a, sec a second ago, just as a very simple, um, actionable step. But another aspect could be exposing somebody to some aerobic stimulus having them start going for daily walks. We know from pain science that just exposing somebody 10 to 15 minutes of continuous exercise that gets them in a heart rate zone that's 20 beats above, above their resting heart rate is enough to stimulate an aerobic response from the um, central nervous system and the cardiovascular system in regards to releasing endorphins 
serotonin and dopamine from the central nervous system, some of the most powerful pain drugs that pharmaceutical companies are trying to mimic with their pain meds. So if we can start to impose some aerobic stimulus, that could be a very minimum effective dose for helping somebody learn how to relax. A lot of science behind that. And then again, to tie in some pain science, teaching people how to relax is really helping them overcome the limiting belief that pain always equals harm or pain always equals damage or pain always equals inflammation. That is not true. We know that from the literature now. So helping them shift from that limiting belief to the liberating truth of pain is a lot of times information or feedback about the sensitivity of the central nervous system and how well it's responding to, in our case, in the sports med and orthopedic world, mechanical stress. But then if somebody's coming in in a sympathetic state, how more sensitized they can be to any nociceptive stimulus. So helping them understand that fundamental piece about if you're in a fight or flight response every time you feel pain because you're under the belief system that that's that damage is happening to your body and then you continue to go into a tense response both from the mind and the body's perspective you get tense tension creates a lot of compression and that can create a lot of mechanical stress and then it's a it's a reverberating loop so implementing some aerobic stimulus into their life educating them about the basics about uh pain and how it's not always equal to damage and converting that to a liberating truth of using pain as information and understanding how we can manipulate our day to minimize these sensitized um, exposures to, let's say, sustained postures or specific positions that they're sensitive to or if the person's demonstrating some neural tension, how can we start minimizing uh, their day exposing them to neural tension. This is going to take me on a whole new tangent, so I'm going to stop that right there. And then I'm going to tie in a few other concepts that I love that I learned from my practice in Tai Chi and Kung Fu, and that is the breath. Oh my God, the breath is an unbelievable way of helping somebody learn the difference between tension and relaxation. The uh, in the Chinese community, they talk about sympathetic and parasympathetic in the mind by using a really interesting analogy. They call, they call it the monkey mind. The monkey mind is the sympathetic state, the scattered brain, the, the brain that's, or the mind that's worried about what happened yesterday and what's going to happen tomorrow. And they talk about the parasympathetic or the relaxed mind. They refer to it as the wisdom mind a mind that is centered and focused and calm and has a purpose. It has an intention. And they use a very simple analogy where they say, hey, well, how do you tame a monkey? And the simple answer is you use a banana. You take the banana, you lure the monkey to the cage, you lock the cage, and now the monkey is tamed. Well, the banana in this analogy is the breath the breath is a beautiful way of taking somebody from a sympathetic state to a parasympathetic state and helping them dance between the, con the, the continuum of relaxation and tension. And if they choose to focus on the breath and create that cognitive anchor of breath, 
this is one of the pillars of a great athlete compared to a good athlete. A great athletes, according to a lot of the neuroscience, have a very well-developed anterior cingulate gyrus. So they have this ability to create an incredible amount of focus and to mute everything else around them and focus in on their cognitive anchor, whether that be their, their sport, a movement that they're currently doing, their breath, whatever. But teaching people a movement practice and in that movement practice, teaching them the skill of creating tension versus creating relaxation using something as simple as the breath can be monumental in the rehab process. And one other thing about the breath is it's a very interesting tool that can be used to either create tension or relaxation. A lot of times these days we hear people talk about the breath in terms of calming us down. But in martial arts, we use the breath a lot of times to create tension, to create power and force uh, with our strikes or in the warm-up with a very uh, aggressive inhale and exhale and inhale and exhale to really ramp up the system. And then at the end of practice, at the end of training, going into a relaxed breathing to start the recovery process. And I just love how the breath is used all along this continuum in the martial arts to either create tension or create relaxation. And what a beautiful way to tie something like the breath into rehabilitation because after rehab, we can take the breath work and the cultivation of uh, controlling our breath right into performance to create an enormous amount of strength, power, and endurance. Uh, my Sifu, my, or master, translated in Chinese, Sifu is master, he likes to use the term steel wrapped in cotton. And I love that quote from Sifu Maza because steel wrapped in cotton is such a great way of explaining the, um, the blend of tension and relaxation. I mean, it's essentially the yin and yang principle. That's what belief five is, is tension and relaxation, yin and yang, finding that balance and not getting stuck in one aspect of the continuum or the other. And I really want to tie in one of Bruce Lee's quotes here to really um, close out the tension and relaxation uh, belief. Bruce Lee says, be soft, yet not yielding, firm, yet not hard. Remember that firmness is brought to life by gentleness, and gentleness is activated by firmness. What is the purpose of firmness and gentleness? The purpose of firmness is to keep one from getting too lax, while the purpose of gentleness is to keep one from getting too hard. Nothing can survive long by going to extremes. So this philosophy is really sums up Taoism and the principle of polarization, yin and yang, tension, relaxation. And I like to think of relaxation as the absence of tension. So how do you learn how to relax? Learn how to get tense. Let that tension go and then feel that difference between tension and relaxation. So I love when I'm working with clients who tell me, oh, I can't relax. I, I have a really hard time relaxing. I never know how to relax. We go right into tension techniques safely and then I have them let that tension go and I simply say to them that's relaxation and let's practice that it's a skill and it can be cultivated with focus and intention belief six use variable repetition 
to reinforce motor learning and independence. So if the ultimate goal is to develop retention, which means that after a period of non-practice, the, the patient or the client comes back and can demonstrate the skill or the movement that we were trying to teach them from the previous session. The motor learning literature is very clear that if you implement variability as soon as possible in the learning process, retention is optimized. And if we look at the stages of motor learning, where somebody comes in and they start at what we call subconscious incompetence, they don't know that they can't do something, then they find a coach or a therapist and we give them an aha moment and have them realize that there's this conscious incompetence. Now they know that they can't do something after meeting us and with good coaching and setting up the right environment and giving them movement with intention, they can now create conscious competence. So now they, if they think about it, they can do it. And then if they practice long enough and if we do deliver enough variability to their learning experience, well then they can problem solve themselves and we can take them to subconscious competence. They don't have to think about it anymore and they can effortlessly do the movement that they previously could not do. So going from subconscious incompetence, not knowing that they can't do something, to being able to do that thing without having to think about it, requires us to develop, or excuse me, incorporate variability within the learning process. So we're going to talk about in a second the two different forms of variations, but one thing I want to bring up about variations is it gives us, there's two benefits to it. Number one is variations help us to minimize fatigue within the session. So for example, if we're teaching somebody how to hip hinge with a band, and then on the next set we have, have them hip hinge with on a downhill slope, so elevate their heels, and then we have them do a heel or a hip hinge with a band trying to cave their knees in, and we expose them to all these variations of a hip hinge, it actually helps to minimize cognitive fatigue or mental fatigue. And if you've been coached by a good coach before, you've experienced this. You, they have you do something, you're challenged by it, you get a little frustrated, they pick up on that, they have you do something else, and then you come back to the thing that was just frustrating you, and all of a sudden you can do it. So learning how to use variations to minimize fatigue within the learning process can not just help enhance the client's experience, but it can actually help them learn faster. And we know that fatigue is the ultimate killer of learning. I mean, try to get a really bad night's sleep and learn something the next day. It's, it's challenging. So something to keep in mind in terms of a benefit of using variations. So let's talk about variations and the two forms that they can come in. You can ex expose somebody to a physical variation or a cognitive variation. Let's talk about the physical variation. We talked a little bit about this in uh, the move with intent section, belief number four, but in terms of variability, we can expose someone to constrained or an unconstrained environmental variation to help them learn the task. So it can be looked at as a proprioceptive cue, but it can also be looked at as a variation. So for example, we can vary the load application. If we're teaching somebody how to do a squat, we can give them a, we can have them do a box squat with um, a kettlebell 
being held in the front, so a goblet squat. We can have them do a squat where they don't have a kettlebell anymore, and now we have a band trying to cave their knees in, so that's a different load application. Or we can have them stepping on a band and then holding that band up in their hands so that as they squat down, the resistance lightens, and as they stand up, the resistance gets harder. It's called accommodating resistance. So we can vary the load application. We can vary the speed of the movement. We can have them do it really slow. We can have them do it fast and everywhere in between. We can also change the position that they're doing it in. So for example, we can put them on all fours and have them quote unquote squat by weight shifting back and doing a lower quarter flexion pattern while they maintain extension through their spine. So these are all physical variations that you can incorporate into a treatment while still having the same intention throughout. A cognitive variation, again, we talked about this in the move with intent section, where we can use a verbal cue for visualization and imagery. So I'm thinking of an example right now where I was trying to learn a Tai Chi move and I was completely blanking on the... Um, on the move, I just I felt uncoordinated and it was wasn't working for me. And I I had the my coach couldn't use a previous memory to help me learn it, but he gave me a very brilliant verbal cue for visualization where he asked me to just visualize a bird spreading its wings. And all of a sudden it clicked. He used a very specific verbal cue or visualization and helped me imagine and uh, visualize something in nature. That gave me a cognitive variation, even though the movement that I was doing was the same. If you've ever listened to a really awesome sprint coach coach and how they use their verbal cues to have the client focus on something else for uh, motor planning purposes, like trying to throw their knees to the sky or drive your foot through the earth like a spear. These visualizations can be so brilliant in terms of bringing variability into the coaching session, again, even though the movement is totally the same. It's really interesting. Uh, Nick Winkleman brings this up a lot in his book, uh, The Language of Coaching as well. So that is using variable repetition to reinforce motor learning and independence. All right, belief seven. Belief seven is basically promoting continued engaging activity to ultimately create sustainability, independence, and longevity. And the key word here is engaging. If we really wanna continue doing what we love into our 80s, into our 90s, we have to find enjoyment in what we do. Why? Because that leads to a habit, a physical activity habit, whether that be weekly or daily, to sustain health. If exercise or movement or physical activity is always looked at as a chore, and something that we have to willpower ourselves to do, it's not going to be as sustainable. And health is a prerequisite to fitness and performance. So if we're trying to get fit and perform at a high level well into our older years, well then we have to find joy in the physical activities that we do so that we're lured to do them. One of the, my favorite types of exercises that I learned from Greg Cook is called self-limiting exercises. And the beauty of self-limiting exercises is that it forces engagement because it forces us to confront our weakest link. It really focuses us 
forces us to focus and be present and dance between tension and relaxation. Uh, the best example of this is being on a balance beam or on a um, paddleboard. If you're not present, if you're not focused on the task at hand, if you don't know how to dance between tension and relaxation, you fall off. If you're not in tune with your breath, you fall off the balance beam, you fall off the paddleboard. This is what a self-limiting exercise is essentially. Doing a Turkish getup with a shoe balancing on your fist. Can you demonstrate breath throughout the entire movement? And we set it up in a way that nature gives you your feedback. The shoe falls off your fist. You lose your balance. You come off the balance beam. Self-limiting exercises is a type of exercise that forces us to slow the heck down and have quality precede quantity rather than our current quantity-focused epidemic. And I was the first, I'll be the first person to admit I was really seduced by quantity-focused exercise early on in my career coming up as a health and fitness enthusiast. And I was always putting fitness before health. And it wasn't until five or six years ago that I started to realize that I wasn't performing at my best anymore and I was dealing with aches and pains that I didn't thought I didn't think I needed to keep dealing with. So just shifting my focus in terms of finding physical activities that provided me with some variability, provided me with some joy and allowed me to get involved with self-limiting exercises to really call myself out on my own bullshit, to be honest with you. Uh, and that's what martial arts really did for me is I went into the practice thinking I was strong and fit and it confront, it put me up against a lot of self-limiting exercises. Uh, and it really was engaging because I always got feedback from a mistake or from a, uh, from my inability to breathe in a certain position, for example, it was, it was a very interesting experience. And I think in our quantity-focused epidemic uh, health and fitness model right now, we don't see a lot of people focusing on health before fitness. We just really don't. A lot of the a lot of the stuff on social media and a lot of the questions being asked is, you know, how heavy did you lift? How fast did you go? How long did you run? How hard did you go? It's all quantity-focused questions. Never really do we talk about, or do you hear? People talking about balance, breath work, control, mobility, timing, body control. I mean, when I went into a martial arts gym, it wasn't how heavy did you lift or how fast did you throw a punch. It was what was your exhale to inhale ratio during that last form? And did you stick your target each time? It was a very different culture, and um, which really helped me level my own playing fields in terms of my health and fitness. So really... Boiling the last belief down, belief number seven, which is promoting continued engaging activity to really help us sustain our health and fitness and for the sake of longevity. We want to put quality before quantity and we really want to make sure that we find joy in the things that we do so that they become habits. And to finish off here with the values, five values. Number one, 
understand first, then advise. So to me, my core values is basically a promise or a mantra in terms of carrying out my belief statement. So understand first, then advise. Basically, I made a promise to try my best to not be an advice monster. Understand first, then advise means that I really try to understand the person's challenges that is coming to me for help, asking them good questions and really putting in the effort uh, to glean as much information as I can from them about what has worked in the past and what hasn't to understand their situation rather than bombarding them with advice before really understanding all their challenges and their full picture. Core value number two, educate and stay educated. I am a huge proponent of self-care education. In my opinion, if the person doesn't understand how to take care of themselves, I have not done my job. And I promise to continue to stay educated on the best self-care practices and continue to learn and grow in that regard until the day I die. I'm an achiever. I'm a learner. I'm a grower. And value number two always reminds me of that. Educate and stay educated. Core value number three, be proactive. I really believe that leading by example is the best way to lead. So I will always be proactive with my own self-care, mentally and physically, so that I can lead by example for my clients. And to be honest with you, this has made me a better therapist and a better coach because as I've struggled to increase my own mobility in certain areas of my body, like my ankles and my hips, and improve my own strength and improve my own endurance, the struggle is so real that if you haven't lived that struggle, it makes it that much harder to coach other people through that same struggle. So being proactive is a promise to lead by example and to not always wait until things hurt to address movement weak links. That's both for myself and for my clients. And throughout this core value number four, while doing all of the things I just talked about above, including my values, excuse me, including my beliefs, I promise to be compassionate, which is core value number four. To me, being compassionate, I break the word compassion down into companion and passion. Companion means to be with someone and passionate means a willingness to suffer. So to be willing to sit with someone who is suffering and be present and really listen and understand them and make it about them and what their goals are rather than trying to superimpose my agenda on them. That's what makes means that's what it means to me to be compassionate and then finally stay humble i can't learn move or grow without being humble i can't fill up my bucket without reminding myself that i don't know everything and i don't have all the answers so i think it's really important for me to bring a lot of humility into the work that i do to always be ready to be wrong and learn from that wrong and learn how to strategize so that I make sure that I continue to learn and grow along with my clients because quite honestly, my clients have taught me so much more than I could ever learn from a book. And if we don't have a core value of staying humble, I don't think we can optimize learning and I don't think we can optimize outcomes. So those are my core values understand first and advise, educate and stay educated, be proactive, be compassionate and stay humble. 
All right, everyone, that wraps up my belief statement and my core values. I will stay my belief statement and my core value statement to wrap it all up. I believe in the potential to change and to bring out that potential. We need an ideal learning environment that coaches the whole person using a positive approach. I believe in teaching people how to move with intent while helping them feel the difference between tension and relaxation. And I believe in using variable repetition to reinforce motor learning and independence. And I believe in promoting continued engaging activity to optimize sustainability and longevity. And in order to carry out my belief statement, I promise to, my core values, understand first, then advise, educate and stay educated in the best self-care practices. I promise to be proactive with my own self-care, to lead by example and not wait for things to hurt in order to address weak links. And while doing so, I will be compassionate and I will stay humble. Thank you so much for listening. Have an awesome rest of your day. All right, y'all. Episode's over. If you enjoyed it, please follow us on Spotify. Share it with a colleague. It would mean so, so much to me and my team. If you have any questions or follow-up conversations that you want to nerd out about, please shoot me an email. Ramez at neuropedicspt.com. I answer all my emails. I'm more than willing to nerd out with any of you. Also, our virtual mentorship is open for enrollment. So if you're interested, please shoot an email to neuropedicspt at gmail.com and we will get back to you as soon as possible. Thank you again for listening and have an awesome day. But I want to let you know about our foundation's mentorship program. This is a 12-week program designed for orthopedic and sports physical therapists interested in better understanding how various motor control and neuromuscular rehab models can be integrated into any practice, making you a well-rounded therapist while improving outcomes. With the various motor control perspectives available to us today, oftentimes we can be left feeling confused, not knowing who to listen to and which course to take next. We know what it feels like to take a weekend course and feel like you have to choose between one approach or another, but it doesn't have to be that way. What if a certain depth of understanding in various models brought us some clarity, cognitive agility, and creativity into our clinical practice? That's our goal with this 12-week program. We'll dive deep into five of the foundational systems of motor control, like the reflex model and the dynamic systems model. We'll dissect each model's strengths and weaknesses to see how each model may complement one another through synergy. Here's what you'll get through this 12-week program. You'll get home study content, which will consist of PowerPoint audio lectures. You'll get one-on-one -on -one mentoring calls for an hour a week where we dissect practical case study examples from your current caseload so you can apply the content to your clients right away. We'll also have plenty of time for Q&A so you can get a deeper understanding of the home study material. Here's what you will not get from this program. We're not offering new techniques or fancy exercises, and we're not promoting new assessment or evaluation strategies. And rather than bashing other systems, we'll be taking a different approach towards motor control, an inside-out approach where we start with our why and our beliefs and values. If you're interested in learning more about this 12-week mentorship program, please email us at neuropedicspt at gmail.com. We're now offering free discovery calls so you can learn more about what we have to offer. And now, without further delay, let's dive into today's episode.